This is Dr. Doctor, the radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we're presenting another bonus Finding the Halo episode dealing with coronavirus. After all, one meaning of corona is a halo of light. So together, let's find the silver lining in this pandemic. And while normally we are heard on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, this episode will be played on various podcast apps and at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. We also would like to give a shout out to the Augustine Institute and the formed app where Dr. Doctor can now be found. Today's guest will be Dr. Tim Reichert, who is an expert in things economic, how the pandemic is affecting the economy and how economic strategies can be employed to battle various aspects of the pandemic and its fallout. Uh, Dr. Reichert is the president and CEO and co-founder of Economic Partners, LLC. He got his bachelor's at Franciscan University of Steubenville in political science. He got his master's in international political economics at Catholic University of America and a PhD in economics at George Mason University. Professionally, he works with applied microeconomics and finance. He has 20 years of experience in applied economic consulting, and his practice focuses on tax controversy and planning, but he has substantial experience in many industries and pertinent for us in banking, biotech, healthcare, insurance, and the pharmaceutical industry. He's married, has four children, and welcome to Dr. Doctor, Tim Reichert. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is a true joy. Now, I love etymology, the origin of words. And uh, the word economics, economics comes from two Greek words, meaning household management. So what is the most basic way that we doctors and our listeners can understand what economists do? Sure. So economists are trained to think about human behavior. So how people respond to things, mostly incentives. Those incentives could be prices, explicit or implicit. Uh, they're trained to think about how societies maximize total output given resources, given their resource constraints. And they're trained to think about how that output is distributed. So to your question, economists think a lot about household management in the sense that we think about the same things that households have to consider. For example, decisions to purchase versus produce, uh, how changes in relative prices affect purchasing and production decisions. But we do that at a lot of different levels of aggregation, ranging from the individual to the family, to the firm, and then to the economy as a whole. So, so this is one thing that's fascinating me about economics that I didn't realize before. I, I like listening to courses and books on tape, and I didn't realize how entwined it was with human behavior and why we make choices. Did you know that going into economics or is it something you discovered other, afterwards? Because I always think of dollar signs with economics. Yeah, most people do. I did know that. In fact, it's the reason I, I chose to pursue economics at the graduate level. To, to me, it is probably the most um, rigorous, and not merely in a data uh, sense of the term, but, but in, a, in fact, a, a mathematical sense of the term, the most rigorous approach to understanding human behavior, not only at the individual level, but also how human behaviors coalesce into what we would call equilibria. Yeah. So one of the books I've listened to, it's a, it's a huge one by Daniel Kahneman or Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. Are you familiar with that? I am. It makes me think, wow, if I had to do over again, that would have been a fascinating area to get into, you know, the, where economics and psychology uh, meet. It just sounds like a blast to me. So do you have fun yeah. doing what you do? I do. I enjoy it very much. Uh, I, I'm 
privilege to uh, to work with most of the Fortune 100, and they they are um, kind enough to to bring me into some of their most um, crucial decisions and uh, most important matters, and that includes having the opportunity to sit with the C-suite of those organizations to understand how they deal not only with big strategic questions, but also, you know, very little questions, like how do we uh, respond to a change in prices in this particular market? So I, I enjoy it very much. And I, it also affords me an opportunity to think about um, questions such as ones, Tom, that you and I have discussed in, in other uh, contexts, like the effects of um, the of contraceptive technology. On yes. A whole host of things, uh, including interest rates. So, and we're going to have him back at another date for a show entirely on the economic impact of contraception. <laughs> I look forward to it. Oh, so do we. Um, I wondered, especially now in this in this time of the pandemic, I, I'm really interested to get get your input, um, and especially uh, Dr. Reichert's input as well. You know, as far as historical context, we haven't seen anything like this in our lifetime um, in history yeah. since the, the Spanish flu. How Do we have any insight, um, Tim, into how this affects the economy in, in the past? Yeah, I, I know of several uh, historical analogs that have been studied. The, probably the, the most important is the Spanish flu, um, but it's important maybe before we even think about this historical benchmarks to, to understand what um, macroeconomic models in particular do, what they are. They're, they're really just mathematical representations of large economies. And these, these mathematical models assume that markets are functioning more or less normally. So there's a question of what we mean by normal. So, you know, <laughs> how much market failure there is naturally, but in general, Macro is based on mathematical models. These are arithmetic and, and calculus uh, equations that assume things like interest rates respond to the scarcity of capital or consumer demand depends upon wealth and income. But in a pandemic, these models don't hold. They don't make sense anymore because their underlying assumptions really sort of fly out the window. And so well, was there a stock market in 1918 and 19? Uh, there was. Okay, yes. good. Yes. Go, go ahead. Yes. Um, but when epidemics happen, uh, they, they do things like contracting the labor supply by could be a third, could be a half. It may, in fact, be more in this case. We, we're not entirely sure yet. Capital markets go into panic mode. And so all these equations just sort of no longer describe what's happening on the ground. Um, <clears throat> Furthermore, most of the pandemics that we can study have occurred uh, during times in which we didn't really collect the kind of economic data that we have now. So for both these reasons, we're, we're sort of flying blind. All that said, we can say something. So there's a recent paper by Robert Barrow and a couple of co-authors that looks at the Spanish flu of 1918. And uh, their argument is that the Spanish flu gives us a way to estimate what they believe is an upper bound. So a worst case scenario for the contraction we can expect from COVID. And Barrow says that uh, the COVID recession or possibly depression will be less severe than the one caused by the Spanish flu for a couple of reasons. First, the Spanish influenza hit younger people quite a bit harder uh, than COVID seems to be. And so that this meant that the Spanish influenza had a, a larger long run effect on the labor market than COVID because you know, younger people uh, participate more heavily in the labor market. <clears throat> also, 
uh, younger people have a larger effect on consumption. They're not savers uh, relative to older people. They don't save as much. Their marginal propensity to consume is higher. And um, finally, the demand for capital decreased by a lot after the Spanish influenza because capital markets are sort of a trade between, you can think of them as a trade between young people who want capital in order to do things like start businesses and older people who have saved. So when a lot of young people die, uh, you end up with an excess supply of capital, which lowers capital returns. So Barrow finds that after controlling for factors such as the effects of World War I and so on, Spanish influence decreased GDP per capita, mostly because of its effect on young people by around 6%, and that this persisted for three to four years. And he that views seems- that as an upper bound. That seems awfully low. I would have expected it to be much more yeah. severe than 6%. Did that number surprise you? It, it, it does. And, and in fact, um, <laughs> uh, my view is the 6% is probably not uh, an upper bound. Uh, but look, <laughs> as I said at the outset, we're, we're all sort of flying blind here. But um, you know, there's, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, first, the shelter-in-place orders that we're seeing and kind of this resulting economic deep freeze um, is global, right? We're, we're basically saying, let's put the entire global economy in timeout. That didn't happen in 1918. Um, uh, and then second, in the case of, of um, uh, prior acade- uh, um, epidemics, uh, we, didn't, um, we didn't tell uh, all of the various sectors of the economy to go into timeout, so to speak. We didn't put all of the sectors globally into an economic deep freeze um, at the same time. Uh, And that gave time for economies to adjust and we don't really have that now. So I think there's, there are good reasons to expect that the 6% in fact could, could be, you know, a reasonable estimate could even be a lower bound, Um, but we won't know until we start to get some data. You mentioned earlier that uh, markets go into panic mode. Is panic mode the up and down we've been seeing in the stock market, or is that referring to something else, or is that part of it? Yeah, that's that that's certainly part of it. The stock market um, was, without a doubt, uh, in a in a panic until uh, the Fed um, basically decided to pull out all the stops and say we're gonna we're gonna support the market by buying. Uh, government bonds as well as corporate bonds. Um, they're even going to be buying uh, uh, bond ETFs, corporate bond ETFs. So I think until until the Fed really kind of put a, a floor underneath the market, it was without a doubt in in panic. And you could see that uh, in in bond yields. You could see that in credit um, mortgage backed uh, securities prices, uh, commercial mortgage backed securities prices. See it on a whole host of um, uh, indicators, but um, I, I'm not sure we're in a panic now. I think what we're in is basically just an old-fashioned uh, bear market. Very gotcha. good. Now, one of the things that I find interesting, I know Tom and I have talked a lot about, is how people's fear of an economic downturn affects their actions in following mm-hmm. or not following the public health recommendations. And I am thinking to myself as I'm driving to work, being in in healthcare. There's an awful lot of painters, and and my neighborhood is roofed on yesterday. <laughs> you know, so how how effective, I guess, would we expect the stay-in-place orders to be at you know really suppressing the market? Although I know that's not their intention, or how much can we expect the market to continue um, in spite of this? Yeah, I, I, it's a good question. You're 
I think, you know, there's really sort of two plays in fear, or rather two fears in play here that you're, you're alluding to. Um, there's the fear of the disease, and then there's the fear of economic contagion. And I, you know, I don't think that many people are refusing to follow public health recommendations um, out of fear of a sharp economic downturn. Part of the reason for that is something I mentioned just a moment ago. You know, once the Fed starts doing things like buying treasury bonds, which, which means that they've essentially authorized Congress to print money. Uh, that's a new thing. Um, people realized that the government would bail out almost anything and anyone. And so for the time being, I think people are largely complying with these, these public health interventions because they trust government uh, can and will cover them. Now, if things turn out to, to kind of have the same time horizon as the Spanish influenza, which you know, occurred if I'm not mistaken, over the course of more than 12 months, might have been 20. Yes. Yeah. Um, then I could imagine people behaving very differently. I would think that at that point, the credibility of the government's standing behind or, or perhaps underneath um, the market with this kind of broad-based income insurance is going to decrease and people might start to take risks uh, in order to make ends meet. Risks of working when it might be safest not to work. Yes. Yeah, that's what I'm alluding to. Okay. So how do those in public authority balance the needs of the economy collapsing with the public health needs of the people? You're, you're a Catholic. That's an incredibly important part of your life. What Catholic principles help you to see through what we should do between economy and health? Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, <clears throat> So, you know, what sorts of principles should we follow to, to try to balance the, the economic side of this and the public health effects? Um, I think first the answer depends on your time horizon. So the short run answer is a little different from the long run answer. So let me start with the short run. So in the short run, and um, I'm stealing this from uh, an economist uh, that I think very highly of, John Cochran at the Hoover Institution. Um, uh, the, the key principle to keep in mind, and you guys certainly know this, is that there's no single uh, reproduction number. So people have wildly different reproduction numbers or R-naughts. Um, uh, and different kinds of activities have wildly different reproduction numbers and R-naughts. And, and for well. our so, audience, reproduction number is roughly how many people in a population where no one's had a disease are likely to catch the disease from one person who has it. And right now the estimate exactly right. is, um, you know, for influenza is, you know, between 0.9 and 1.9. Whereas for uh, this virus, it's somewhere between 1.4 and 2.9. It's, it's yep. greater, probably twice as great. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and viruses with an R not of one or less are very easily contained. You, if you're close to a, a reproduction number of one, pretty easy to contain that, uh, that, that disease. But a lot of Im implications flow from this simple idea that this R not is not a single number. We throw this single number around, but in fact, there's a distribution of R naughts. It's like a bell curve across the population. So, for example, we know that there are these so-called super spreaders, right? Yes. People who go and they infect as many as several hundred other people. And we know that similarly activities uh, involve, you know, higher or lower rates of transmission across the social network. Spring break in Florida, right? That, that yes. obviously comes to mind. 
Um, <clears throat> so uh, what does this have to do with your question about balancing economic and health outcomes? So the point is this, public policy interventions have, at least in my view, not thus far done a very good job of distinguishing between low R not activities and high R not activities. So we've simply shut it at all. We've, we've shut it all down. And this sort of economic decrease means that we've put a stop to a large set of economic activities that have a low R not or reproduction number right alongside of the activities that have a high R not. So for example, it makes a lot of sense to shut down bars and restaurants. I think we all get that, but yes, it may not make sense to shut down steel mills and automotive plants and other forms of manufacturing activity because manufacturing activity, at least in today's manufacturing environment, usually entails a certain amount of social distancing. It probably wouldn't yes. be very hard to reconfigure plant and equipment to ensure that people are a bit more spread out. So, so the point here is, is to the key, I think, as is my own view, to, to balancing these two these two objectives is, is this, we shouldn't be distinguishing between essential and non-essential. We should instead be distinguishing between high and low transmission activities, high R not, low R not. That's how I, policy- I cannot wait to bring this up to our public health experts next time we interview them. This is an incredible uh, tidbit that you've given us, Tim. Well, again, that's really John Cochran's tidbit. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of stealing his idea. <laughs> He's humble um, too. <laughs> so uh, maybe another principle to keep in mind um, when we're thinking about this is the incentives that that, uh, that that politicians in particular, but also perhaps the media have. And, and this is to go back to a question you asked me earlier about how um, economics and, and, and economists think about human behavior in light of incentives. I think this is a good example. So if I'm a, I'm a self-interested politician, um, it's, it's basically always in my best interest to call for lockdowns. Why? Um, even, and, and by the way, that's even if I think COVID is, is very unlikely to be severe. Always it's in my interest to call for lockdowns. Because if I over-restrict, I can't really lose. If the virus turns out to not be severe, I can always claim that we were victorious because of the restrictive policies. I can raise my hand and, and claim victory. On the other hand, if the virus turns out to be severe, then I did the right thing. So either way, I'm doing the right thing, or I should say either way, it's in my interest. Obviously, I'm not doing the right thing if the, if the virus is not severe. I've caused an enormous amount of economic cost that I didn't have to. Um, so really, it's so, the, the loss aversion that has driven so much of this. Uh, you know, Usually, we're used to seeing so much partisanship coming out of D.C., and we've gotten a lot more people working together, but it's really because they all don't don't want to undershoot this thing. Yeah, loss aversion is a good way to think of it. I mean, it's sort of a behavioral economics term. It's it's really just you know politician cost minimization. It's not the right. <laughs> it's not the right calculus, right? The right calculus would say, um, how do I balance the things we were just talking about earlier? But from a, a political point of view, from the point of view of a self-interested politician, he has a dominant strategy. His equilibrium strategy is to be over-restrictive, and that is by definition over-restrictive. And yes, it, for for him, it's it's a kind of um, it's a kind of uh, loss minimization. Um, but we should we should keep those incentives in mind when we're th when we're observing these debates between what some people are calling mitigation. Uh, which is a, a less severe form of, of restriction and suppression, which is a more severe form. Uh, we should 
we should keep in mind the incentives facing the politicians who are making these decisions. Um, Turning to the long run, um, I think this question is is a lot harder, and I think I think we're going to have a um, national discussion about uh, fragility, our our supply chains, globalization. That's going to play out over a long time, and I don't have a lot of clarity on that yet. But I think that's that's going to be one of the more um, important national discussions we've had in a long time. And then to your question about Catholic principles, I think a couple of things there. First, um, an obvious one is the principle of subsidiarity. Um, it seems to me we've, we've sort of decided that public health epidemics should all be handled at the, nat the national level. Um, and I grant that there is a fair amount of state, you know, governor-led policy happening for sure. Um, but fundamentally, this is a, this is a, a national um, issue, at least as it's been framed currently. Um, and the basic idea behind this is that pandemics are what's called a public bad. They're a giant form of what an economist would call a negative externality from one region to another. So, you know, people in one region, say Florida spring breakers, do something that maybe isn't terribly wise, and then they affect people in another region. Um, and pandemics, therefore, start in one place and move to other places. And so in these sorts of contexts, the idea is that we need a national policy. So Maybe that's true. Maybe we need a national lockdown, but but I don't think we know that yet. And my own leanings are much more local. What I suspect, and I should be pretty clear that I don't know this for sure. You know, nobody's going to know until we have a lot more data. But what I suspect is that we're pretty good as a people at social distancing and at identifying other common sense changes that happen spontaneously. Uh, also, to go back to a comment I made earlier about the R naught, if it's true that different activities have different transmission numbers or reproduction numbers, then we ought to be forming policies with that in mind. And it's also true that this sort of localized information is is um, crucial for forming those policies. So smaller political units, maybe even counties, but more likely states, are going to have a much better handle on much better information about the portfolio of activities in their regions and be better positioned to make um, less uh, invasive, I would say, policy interventions on that basis. Tim, it might interest you to know that uh, Andrew and I interviewed the medical director of the Oregon Department of Public Health on Monday, two nights ago. And mm -hmm. we asked him about what the president had said the night before about extending the recommendations to April 30th for social distancing. And and the, he, he said, oh, I, I didn't realize that. I'm like, what, you didn't? No, that's just a recommendation. It carries no... Uh, no weight, no impetus behind it, because right now all these decisions are still being made at the state levels. Yeah, 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 that is interesting. Um, that's a podcast I need to listen to. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Tim, we have seen how this pandemic has been affecting our economy, but how can the economy and the economic principles that we're kind of talking about serve the needs of shutting down this pandemic and healing patients? Yeah. Um, so I haven't had a lot of time with this, but what I would say is that um, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of economists taking a real interest in epidemiology models. So economists are, are very good at the kind of math involved. Yes. And they've got a lot to say about how social interaction actually happens. Um, in fact, uh, you, you're starting to see game theory, um, which, wow. is a, which is a, a really a, a sub-branch of microeconomics 
some would say microeconomics is a subbranch of game theory. <laughs> Um, you're starting to see a lot of game theory layered into um, epidemiological models. Um, but, uh, you know, we're, we're starting to take the kind of the standard uh, SIR model. This SIR stands for susceptible, infected, recovered. Yes. These three population classes and um, make uh, additions and certain changes to those models. So my guess is there's going to be a lot of influence from uh, our side of the fence to to yours over the coming years and vice versa. <laughs> How that'll play out, I don't know. But suddenly, uh, a lot of of uh, kind of key economics articles are are focused on exactly this question we're beginning with with the epidemiology. Uh, Tim, uh, in a previous communication, you mentioned something about John Paul II's teaching on the dignity of work, and I'd like you to mention about what he said about unemployment. Okay, so uh, I was referring there to uh, Laborum Exercens, if I remember correctly, and um, uh, in that encyclical, uh, JP2 um, kind of developed a concept of, of an indirect employer. Um, and it's, it's a little bit of a vague idea, but, but the indirect employer is anybody who influences the labor market essentially through policies or, or other actions. So. Uh, indirect employers, at least right now, would clearly include the health policy decision makers who are, you know, advocate, advocating for these these sort of economic uh, deep freezes and, and lockdowns. And, and JP2's uh, point to them was that unemployment is always an evil. Uh, in fact, he actually used that word. Um, wow. Uh, which makes sense, right? I mean, the, 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 the definition of an evil is the absence of, of good. Of good. Evil is the privation of, of good. Yes. Uh, of the good. And um, uh, so um, his point to so-called indirect employers, which in, in you know, the, the current crisis certainly includes uh, the health policy advocates um, and, uh, and decision makers, uh, is that, that um, an absence of work, especially for young people, is something that should um, be avoided to the extent that one can. Now, obviously, in this case, we've got other, you know, other other bads that we have to balance against yes. that. Um, but um, but I think it follows from this that we need to take seriously the evils of unemployment and and and, for example, the large economics literature that establishes all kinds of clear causal link linkages between things like unemployment and suicide, unemployment and drug use, for example, opioids. Uh, there is a uh, literature on the linkage between unemployment and cancer, heart disease, et cetera. So um, these things need to be factored in. That's in fact exactly what some of the economic research today is trying to do. So I go back to your earlier question. Yes, uh, that's very practical. Yeah. I know uh, Andrew loves thinking big about the economy and, you know, he wanted to know, and I want to know too, on a scale of one to 10, how big of an economic impact is coronavirus <laughs> having on the U.S. and the global? Is this the biggest event of our lifetimes? Oh, yeah, man, that's a hard question. Um, so uh, my guess, and it's just a guess, is that certainly, well, I shouldn't say my guess and then certainly, but my guess is that it's <laughs> likely, well, you're likely, a, yeah, right, likely a, a 10 in the short run, and then there's a wide range of possible answers in the long run. So short run's pretty obvious, right? We're having a massive um, global uh, record uh, decrease in GDP and uh, 
similarly massive global increase, record increase in unemployment. Um, so I, I think it's pretty easy to say that that it's a it's a ten in the short run. Of course, it's the longer run that matters, and um, in the longer run, there are a lot of things we can't really foresee. So, for for example, the epidemic and the you know, suppression policies could uh, cause together a financial crisis or some other kind of negative cascade for like, for example, like a war in the Middle East or something. But, um, you know, we know that corporate debt and household debt levels are very, very high. Uh, we, we know that the commercial mortgage-backed securities market is in bad shape. Um, we know that emerging market economies may not have enough dollars to cover their, their dollar denominated obligations, even with the swap lines that the Fed is open, which are just basically a way that we buy their currency to give them dollars. So uh, there's definitely some risk of financial contagion to go along with this, this real contagion. And um, whether that financial crisis risk is realized really depends on how long this epidemic lasts. And that's something, of course, it's, that, you know, we're all trying to get our arms around, nobody knows. Um, it's also kind of impossible, I think, to see the, foresee all the real effects, so, so meaning the non-financial effects on, on businesses and, and consumer demand. Um, so for example, one of the most important uh, questions right now is the rate at which small businesses are basically just dying as these lockdowns continue, and the rate at which those businesses may or may not come back after the epidemic. So. You know, my experience, small businesses tend to have much thinner margins and less, certainly a lot less access to capital than larger ones. And so we know that they'll become insolvent uh, relatively quickly under these conditions. And uh, when we think about this, it's very important to understand that these businesses aren't just a collection of assets, physical assets, mostly they're what economists call organizational capital, which is just kind of a fancy term for ways of doing things and these webs of employer, manager, employee relationships and so on. And once that'd be that, kind of like the service industries. Well, any, any business, uh, even a manufacturing business, right? It, it, there are ways of doing things, you know, this idea in economics of a production function. It's how we think of a firm uh, in very simple mathematical terms. All that really does is represents a recipe for doing things. And those recipes are very complex and they depend on specific people with specific relationships uh, to combined with specific forms of capital. And once all that breaks up, it's, it's just very hard to put back together. It's the organizational capital that's, that's I think the hardest to put back together. And so, so what I worry about is that there's, a, there's probably a tipping point here at which a lot of these small businesses have gone under and too much of the economy's organizational capital just dissolves and it becomes really hard to, to get it all back on its feet. Um, that's in fact part of the story of what happened during the Great Depression. So um, that, that's kind of the, the nightmare scenario. And I, I think that scenario is potentially realized if, this, if, the, uh, if the pandemic is as lasting as the Spanish flu and we have to couple it with these sort of suppressive policies. You know, what, one of the things that really got me thinking about some of this is all of the work that's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in their efforts to kind of prop up the economy. And yeah. uh, that's juxtaposed with yesterday, for example, we saw a news article about a, a local restaurant that's been here for 40 years, and they said they're closing indefinitely. Yeah. They don't plan to reopen. 
do you think what we're seeing out of DC is going to be effective enough, have the effects desired? How should we look at that? Uh, I think my short answer is the answer I just gave. I think it's extremely <laughs> hard. hard. To force yeah. 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 I mean, um, you know, one, maybe one way to, um, uh, to, to think about this is, is, um, is this, um, uh, you know, we've got about a $22 trillion economy. Um, if we, if we shut it down for half of the year, which I think is extreme, that's $11 trillion of lost output, uh, $11 trillion of, of lost output in the U S alone. Um, you just, that will never get back. Of course. Yeah. You, well, you, you won't get it back by definition because we were at pretty much full capacity before this crisis occurred. So we can't get above that. We can't get above full capacity to kind of make it up. Right. Um, so it's gone forever. And that, that $11 trillion is not, you know, that's, that's a, that's a whole circulation of obligations, people paying other people. And then those people paying other people, it's a, it's a whole circular flow of, of, uh, of output and, and the associated money. And so, um, uh, you can't kind of print your way out of that. Um, so the, the, the fiscal and monetary stimulus certainly will not be, um, sufficient. In fact, I'm not sure much of anything will be if we've got to lock this down for, you know, six to, to eight months in the way that we have for the past few weeks. But I think everybody knows that. I think policymakers understand that. And so I think it's, it's highly likely that we're going to, we're going to start to, to think very carefully about more nuanced ways to begin to get back to work. You can see that clearly in the, in the Trump administration's uh, emphasis on this. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll begin to see that uh, across the states as well. So do you think that this new CARES Act is doing things that are rational to do at this time from an economic standpoint? Um, well, yeah, most likely, yes. Um, <laughs> I guess rationality depends upon your time horizon, right? So yes, um, you know that you're, that, get, that gets us into all kinds of of questions uh, uh, around um, what happens to the national debt downstream of this, right? Um, I, I think that I think that one important thing for all of us to understand is that that these aren't stimulus bills you know we, we keep having this, yes. this discussion about um you know stimulus bills these that's not what these are um uh and that matters to you know how we think about um the the, the bill uh, or the bills rather so fiscal stimulus and and for that matter monetary stimulus these are outlays or or monetary injections that are designed to kind of stimulate economic activity where it seems to be lacking Mm-hmm. Under the theory that you know there are various forms of market failures, price stickiness, and so forth that that mean that that, that markets sometimes get stuck. Um, these COVID nineteen policy interventions, these the, the stimulus bill, has a very different intention, uh, along with the Fed's monetary policy, the QE, quantitative easing. Um, it, so it might seem like the underlying idea is stimulus, but it's not. The underlying idea is that if we're going to put the economy on hold, the only way um, to do that uh, and, and keep everyone from a, a liquidity pri- crisis, no one can pay their mortgage, no one can pay their, their, their rent, whatever, uh, is to heli- helicopter drop money into people's <laughs> wallets. Um, and that's really fundamentally what we're doing is we're trying to deal with this, what we hope is a short run 
liquidity problem. You know, do people have enough money to 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 pay their bills? And um, you can only do that by basically helicopter dropping money into their wallets. And the hope, of course, is that uh, that in three months we'll be getting back to work. Um, in which case, uh, I think that the policy um, decisions have been uh, rational. We're still going to have a, a a heck of a hangover, I think, at the end of all this. Um, but if if instead uh, again we go longer than that, then there's a real question of, you know, whether we should have done this in a different way because at that point we're facing. Um, you know, a real economic uh, calamity. There, there's real possibility then that um, uh, we may not be able to to um, uh, to cover uh, the the uh, the U.S. government's obligations, much less our you know our own individual and household obligations. I know uh, that's 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 a long ways down the road. Just to be clear, very long ways. But but um, to your earlier question, you know, is it rational? That's certainly a scenario in which we might be looking back and maybe wishing we had eased off a little bit. I, I think that's one of the notable absences in all this, where usually you hear a lot of voices clamoring about, oh, the national debt, and we've got to be responsible as a country. I don't hear any of those voices right now. Yeah. Um, you, you talk about this kind of helicopter drop. I think it, it's one of the things that sounds popular to people who don't have a paycheck right now. Um, where does this money come from? Uh, it comes out of it's comes from thin air, um, quite literally. So, so what's happening right now is this: there, there's a there's a computer. <laughs> I'm sure it's many, <laughs> um, but the computer creates an extra dollar in the Fed's account, which is a, a liability for the Fed, and then the Fed uses that that dollar to buy Treasury bonds, or you know, it uses those dollars to buy Treasury bonds, and and those Treasury bonds in turn fund these these helicopter drops of money. But it starts with you know. A, a keystroke. Uh, that's where it comes from. Um, it's but as similar. Catholics, Tim, don't we believe that God is the only one who can create something from nothing? <laughs> uh, so we're getting into some monetary theory here. That um, it, it, so, so this is actually a pretty important point. I mean, the the money is created out of thin air in the sense that I just described it. Yes, but that doesn't mean that there isn't as you know as central banks. Uh, create money that there isn't a, a corresponding asset associated with that money. Most of the time, in sort of normal functioning, economic growth, which is sort of the creation of new wealth, new value, typically by entrepreneurs, but but finding societies finding mm -hmm. new ways of doing things, that is a kind of asset. There's a there's a kind of sort of present value of all those returns. Mm -hmm. And that asset uh, is accompanied in sort of normal functioning by a growth in the money supply to match it. Um, so it's not as if it's truly kind of created out of thin air. The, the bet really that the Fed is, is placing, it's not, it's not created out of thin air in the sense that you're alluding to, Tom, that it's some sort of, you know, terrible lie that's being told. Okay. Um, um, it, it, the, 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 the bet that's being placed is that what we're doing by printing all of this money is we're keeping the economy alive <laughs> long enough so that there is sufficient economic activity in the future to cover that obligation. And we would be worse off if we didn't do it. So there okay, is thank you. We're saving an asset. So that saved asset is as good as a new asset is, is the logic. Thank you. Gotcha. 
Does that have a dilutional effect on the cash that's already out there? I'm I'm trying to think who's holding the bag for this. Is this people who've done (laughs) Uh a good job and saved their money and now it's worth less? Yeah. uh, So yeah, you're, you're really asking, you know, whether we're going to have inflation as a result of all this, this, this money printing. And um, certainly it, it seems straightforward to say print a lot of money, a lot of, a lot of cash going into the system. So prices are going to rise. But it, it isn't always that simple. It might be that simple in the long run, but, but, um, but in the short run, and that short run could last a while, money is, is something that, you have to remember, money is something that circulates or flows through the economy. So if people hoard dollars or banks stop lending, less money is circulating. And that means there's, there's effectively less money chasing the goods in the economy. So you can actually have deflation at the same time the Fed is printing money just because of monetary hoarding, banks are not lending and so forth. Hmm. So so it's not necessary that we're going to we're going to see. In fact, we saw this sort of post financial crisis, the great financial crisis, yes. the global financial crisis. We saw deflation rather than inflation. Now, a lot of people would say no. In fact, what we saw was asset price inflation. We saw inflation that was confined to a particular sector of the economy, which mm-hmm. which really was assets in large part, financial assets, and that may be true. I haven't studied that very carefully, but um, uh, but certainly for a period at least a year, we had deflation post great financial crisis. And I think that's probably, there's a good likelihood that's what we're looking at here in the short run. Now, the longer run is a lot less clear, right? Under under um, under some conditions, you can look at treasury bond yields uh, and, and try to gauge whether there's an expectation of, of inflation. Why is that? Because a treasury bond yield is just the effective interest rate that you get when you buy a treasury bond. Mm-hmm. So you buy a treasury bond for $95 and it pays you $100 a year later. That's about a 5% yield or interest rate. I buy it today for 95. I'm giving the government, government that 95 and they give me 100 a year later. That's me lending to them at a roughly 5% interest rate. So you can look at treasury bond yields and they tell you what the market is expecting for inflation. That interest rate, that 5% in my example, has to cover inflation as well as my risk in lending yes. to the government. Okay. Um, and so you can look at treasury bond yields to, to get a sense for what um, people expect uh, inflation to look like, particularly over the long run. Take a 20-year treasury bond or a 10-year. Um, these are all like, you know, around 1% right now. Um, and so I think that is not a reflection of inflation expectations, unfortunately. We can't really use that to gauge what people think inflation will be because really what we're observing in the bond markets is just everybody rushing to safe assets, driving the price of those bonds up and the implied yield down. And so I I don't think you can pull anything out of uh, the treasury um, markets right now, treasury bond markets, but I do think we will get visibility through those markets within hopefully the next few months. And we'll have a sense for how the market thinks all this money printing is going to affect inflation. And lastly, in terms of economic questions, um, what is the impact and concern regarding something Andrew brought up earlier? And that's our national debt. No one's talking about it. Like he said. Yeah. And we certainly should care about our, national debt. I mean, there's, there's a couple of reasons why we should. Um, 
first, and I, th I think this is something most people don't understand, but it's actually pretty simple um, to, to see it. It's just that you know, the, the, the debate around the national debt hasn't been framed this way. Um, uh, so we worry, um, we worry about uh, the, the national debt because we worry that the interest uh, cost of servicing it will, will basically consume our economic growth. Um, yes. So think about it this way. We've got an economy right now that produces around, a, you know, I guess, 20 trillion, 21, 22 trillion, about, let's call it 20. And that economy normally would grow at around two and a half percent per year. We also have a national debt of around 20 trillion. So if the interest rate on that debt is also two and a half percent, what does that mean? It means that we have to spend all of our growth every year to make the interest payments on that national debt. So, so we're basically taxing away our economic growth to pay the interest due on our prior spending. It's sort of the same thing as giving away the economic betterment of our children to cover their parents' excess spending. Um, uh, yes, that's the, that's the bigger worry, frankly. That's the worry that, that, that economists have, have traditionally had. And right now, the argument is, well, interest rates are so low, that's not a problem. Um, of course, the problem with that reasoning is that, you know, interest rates may not always be low. You can't right? always be that. Is, yeah. is, is this as analogous or is it more complex than just paying the minimum every month on a maxed out credit card? Uh, I mean, effectively, that that is what we're what we're doing. I mean, look, it's analogous to that, right? Um, without a <laughs> doubt, it's mechanically very similar to that. What we're doing. Um, the difference, I suppose, the reason that's not an entirely fair analogy is because you know credit cards are are there to finance consumption, and um, a, a, at least a, a good chunk of our national debt is there to finance. Um, you know, certain public goods, infrastructure, and so forth. You know, some of that debt exists because we paid for infrastructure and productive assets that are paying off now. So we're paying interest on that debt, but those assets are also paying off. So, so it is, it's easy to draw that analogy. And I think that that analogy does hold for some of the debt, for sure, but not all of it. Tim, what final comments would you like to leave with listeners today? Um, <clears throat> yeah, I was thinking about that. Um, uh, I guess the thing, one thing that's come to my mind during this crisis is the, is the idea of almsgiving, um, uh, kind of an interesting idea concept for, for economists, especially, <laughs> especially during Lent, you know, as you know, Lent yes. is a time for, for among other things, almsgiving. And, um, it seems to me that especially during this time when so many people are being thrown out of work, um, you know, we're going to see a lot of unemployment and a lot of con consequent poverty. And I think we need to focus the church on the importance of giving alms. I was reading the entry on this today in the, in the old Catholic encyclopedia, the old 1907. And, and uh, it says that almsgiving is the duty that corresponds to the right of property. I never knew that. Uh, no, I didn't either. Uh, and, and it, and it points out that, that, Almsgiving is a testimony to the divinity of the church. So I guess the thing I would, I would want our, our listeners to consider is, is not only the duty, but the opportunity that the church has during this crisis. But Catholic Church 
that gives alms at a time when governments are, as economists would say, out of bullets, can have a huge impact on souls. If you think about that statement, the testimony to the divinity of the church that, that alms are, or almsgiving, I, I should say, is. So, so let's, uh, let's, let's do that uh, this Lent. Let's, let's find someone local uh, who you know is in need, maybe lost their job, and, and let's give some alms. That is fantastic advice, along with some great information. Tim, thank you for being with us on Dr. Doctor. We look forward to having you back to talk about the economics of contraception. Okay, and, enjoyed it very and, much. Thank you for and, having me. And thank you all listeners to being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor, the official podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. And please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Malali signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Would you get on a plane that doesn't have a pilot? Investing in passive index mutual funds may present the same issue. The Ave Maria mutual funds are actively managed by seasoned investment professionals to help you meet your investment goals in a morally responsible way. Ave Maria funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors could invest in the no-load Ave Maria mutual funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria mutual funds at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.